We all have a yearning for love, but relationships can be confusing and complicated. Dr. Tammy Balashevsky says it all starts from within. It starts with a journey to center. Here's your host for Journey to Center on Empower Radio, Dr. Tammy Balashevsky. Hello, my friends and you sweet, sweet souls. Human beings, we sure are an interesting, complex, odd, and confusing species, wouldn't you say? You know, both ancient and modern wisdom suggest that we would do well to know thyself. But from my perspective, that is definitely easier said than done. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I am one weird human. What is it that makes me tick? Or have you ever thought, I sure would like to make the most of my brain in this human experience? Or if you're ready to up-level your game and become better, better partners, better friends, and better citizens of planet Earth, well, if any of those scenarios sound accurate or appealing to you, I think you're really going to enjoy the enlightening, empowering conversation with my very interesting guest here today on Journey to Center. We are here with Dr. Ransom Stevens. Dr. Stevens is a former physics professor and spent 15 years conducting cutting-edge particle physics research and taught at the University of Texas at Arlington. He then moved into the high-tech world to work for a wireless web startup. He's now a Silicon Valley consultant, novelist, and science writer. Dr. Stevens has written over 400 articles on some very diverse subjects and is an international speaker and teacher. He says creativity, skill, and even perception of self can grow and change by utilizing the body's most important muscle. Dr. Stevens says we face problems individually and together, and our brains are the only tools we have to create solutions. We only get a few decades of awareness, so we should put our heads together and work together. So Dr. Stevens, I'm so happy that we're putting our heads together and having this conversation today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Tammy. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. I feel like there's just a wealth of wisdom here with you and I want to glean as much as I can. (laughs) So I want to start, um, you know, we're talking about your book, The Left Brain Speaks, The Right Brain Laughs. So look at the neuroscience of innovation and creativity in art, science, and life. You say art and science are very different, but yet very, very much the same. So tell me why. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, yeah, it's really amazing. Um, It's kind of the art of science and the science of art. Mm -hmm. You know, in pursuing discovery, pursuing discovery is very much like pursuing uh, creativity, like trying to create something. Because you have to create a lot of things. You have to have wholly new ideas to discover something that no one has seen before or no one has understood before. Coming up with a theory is, is, employs all of the same processes that coming up with a, you know, a metaphor, whether it's a metaphor expressed as sculpture or in, um, on a paint on a canvas or in literature, or it's a metaphor for how we understand nature a theory of the universe or a theory of, of um, a biological process. Neuroscience itself, you know, is packed with discovery. So and that's, that's kind of the picture-in-the-picture picture part, right, is we're using a brain to try and understand our brain. But one of the things I really think is fun about thinking about art and science together is that science 
of course, is trying to understand an objective reality, something that's outside our heads. A, a really good scientific theory could be understood by any life form in the universe. That's the goal, objectivity. Mm. But art mm -hmm. is kind of the opposite, right? In art, the artist is trying to convey a feeling to the beholder. And so mm -hmm. while science try, pursues the totally objective, art, in many, many cases, in most cases, I think, is pursuing total subjectivity to share a feeling, to convey, to convey something through imagery, whether the imagery is words, sculpture, paint, or what have you. Mm. And I, I believe you said that intellect and emotion are very tied together, and it's hard to separate the two. Yeah, this is something that's really well that's really well established in neuroscience, and not that many things are very, very well established in neuroscience because it's such a new mm -hmm. science. But right. and this is easy to understand, I think, is that how do you know what you know? You have to have a feeling when you understand something, when you study some complex system or some idea or somebody's opinion, and then you get it. That is an emotion. That's a feeling. So we don't know things independent of emotion. You have to have that I get it feeling fed back to your more rational wetware, the part of your brain that does your, your reasoning, your inner finement. The inner puppy and the inner finement have to get along. Your feelings have to jive with your understanding or you won't believe the understanding. It just won't grab you. Right. I love that. Something you wrote that kind of expanded my thinking, which I love, is that you say there's an upside to problems, stress, and suffering. Before we innovate, we need to suffer. Every challenge, no matter how trivial or grand, begins with a mix of desire and need, a compulsion to achieve and problem solve, and the stress that goes along with it. If a problem doesn't boil up, it will never engage us. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, stress gets a bad name, doesn't it? And right so. A bad, bad rap. <laughs> well, I know, I try to do meditations to help people alleviate stress, but there's an upside to stress. Well, they got the stress for a reason, hopefully, and if they don't have the stress for a reason, then, you know, that's, that, that, that's, that would suck. But usually we have <laughs> stress for some reason, right? There's something bothering us, some problem that we need to solve, although, as we all know, altogether too much stress is in the face of things that we don't have any control over. But mm -hmm. when we face a challenge, that challenge comes up with this, you know, this burst of unpleasantness. Or it might be a burst of pleasantness. It might be an opportunity you've always wanted. And then there it is. And, you know, it can be a shock. It's like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I was after. I better not blow it. But, it, but there is always stress. There's always some novelty that makes that issue boil up from of other thoughts that are competing for consciousness in our brains, that without that, without that stress, without that novelty, then we just wouldn't recognize it. We would never recognize that as a challenge, and we wouldn't address it. So it has to start with some kind of stress, something that brings it to consciousness, that we have to, to hook us or engage us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was also really happy to read the part of your book about meditating, and that how um, ideas or thoughts or concepts that are more expansive can start to kind of bubble up. You say defocusing 
relaxing and enjoying ourselves more actually makes us more productive, not less productive. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So meditating, we'll talk about that in a second. Let me, let me get to it, though. So yes. the first thing is that in order to approach a challenge, you know, we can't do it independent of the analysis. So while I do advocate goofing off as much as possible, you're not going <laughs> to solve your challenge if you don't do the work. So for most of us, you, know, you can grind away on a problem. Um, you can grind away the challenge, just beat your head up against it and not get the solution. You know, sometimes we get, we get insights while we're cranking away at our desks, but usually they come when we're in the shower or out on a walk or yelling obscenities at a Raider game, right? You never know when they're going to pop up, but they don't tend to pop up as often as they should while we're actually working. And so, deep focus plays just as strong a role in, in, in generating insights as focus does. And what I mean is this, to innovate, to create, there's a process. And that process is to first acquire as much information about this challenge as you can. Just fill your brain with it. Try not to judge which information is more valuable than the other because you're going to let your brain do that for you later. Just assemble as much information about it as you can. Really stare at everything. Go through all your notes. Acquire it. Just pack it into your brain and then go away. Go do something else. Go do something fun. Or do, go do something that makes you calm in a different direction. And then all these processes in your brain will come together and put the pieces together while you're not paying attention, the defocused part. And after you've had, you know, if you meditate, which is a very strong way to go about it, then if you meditate for 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you will have a lot of, a lot of new insights percolate up. The trick then is not to judge them. You know, in a, in a good meditative state, and I, I do, I judge my meditation as good and bad. I, I grade it. It's sort of antithetical, <laughs> I guess, to meditation. But, but when we're not judgmental about our own ideas, we'll just have more of them. We'll inhibit fewer of them. And that will give us more insight. So that mm-hmm. takes us to meditation. And so before I wrote The Left Brain Speaks, The Right Brain Laughs, I, would, I really didn't take meditation and the benefits of meditation very seriously, not even seriously at all. I mean, I recognize the value of relaxation, of course, and certainly introspection and peacefulness among the woods. But the process of meditation, eh. But then I started doing neuroscience research. And it became clearer and clearer that meditation gives you an edge. And the edge is that it's a refined defocus. I know that when I took, so after I wrote this book, one of the first things I did after the draft that ended up being printed was to go and study um, meditation of of compassion and kindness Mm. and found found it very valuable in very many ways. And certainly the ability to, to defocus was the strongest one. But ironically, my meditation teacher, she thought of it and what I'm calling defocus as focus because, well, I don't really understand why she did that. But you, is meditation focusing or defocusing? Hmm. 
I guess it, you could look at it either way. Well, yeah, it's meditation, right? So I guess so. And so I was thinking of it as defocusing because being in the present instant, you know, we could say mm-hmm. it's focusing on the present instant, but we're not focusing on our problems. We're letting them be. We're letting our right. brains deal with them. And that's, that's how meditation helps in the process of innovation and creativity, not to mention all of the other benefits of meditation. And personally, and I don't know, I feel sort of funny admitting it, ironically, but personally, <laughs> I think a meditation practice is probably the most beneficial thing that happened to me from writing this book so far. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a big part of my life. And again, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, guided meditations and I turn people inward and then get them out of their thinking mind and um, open the doorway to the subconscious mind. And it's interesting how what bubbles up from that space is very different and sometimes surprising and always interesting, always very interesting. There's a lot going on. Really like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's become, I I meditate for at least 20 minutes, um, an average of five or six days a week right around oh, five or six great. and more every, more every year. I've been doing it for, I guess this is the second year. I'm just about to start the second year of it. And, um, you know, as a scientist, I'm, I tend to be very skeptical of things and need evidence to prove, but I've been suffering migraine headaches for, um, 40, 43 years. And when I started meditating, since I've been meditating, I have decreased their occurrence by about 15% and their severity by about 50%. And that is statistically mm-hmm. significant because I have two years of data now, and I used <laughs> to get migraines three or four times a month, and now I get them um, two or three times a month, and they don't last as long. So Okay, so you're in the right direction. Yeah. Subjective data, but it's also it's significant at, if you will, four sigma now and, and growing. Right. And now um, I use meditation in my creative classes, and I know you have some different suggestions uh, for opening in our creativity. Is meditation one of them? And do you have yeah. others? Yeah. So um, since since I wrote the left brain speaks, the right brain laughs. I have I have expanded that that idea in some of in well in one speech that I'm still preparing that I'm going to give um, next month for the first time. And, and to a bunch of engineers, too. So that should be a trip. Um, <laughs> engineers are pretty skeptical, you know, logical, Usually, linear. Yes. Well, not actually yes. linear, but, but very, yeah, straight-laced, hard to get to I know laugh. a few. The humor was lacking. <laughs> <laughs> well, once that you get them laughing, they'll keep laughing. But it's hard to get oh, that, that first right? laugh going. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't, get, they didn't get my sense of humor, but good luck with that. <laughs> oh, I've been... I've been making engineers laugh for 20 years now. And it's, it's a trick. It's once you get them going, you know, (laughs) but that first one, it's like they need permission to laugh first, but yeah. So meditation, um, meditation quiets our brains. It quiets our consciousness and it, Mm -hmm. it lowers the inhibition level of our neurons. So neurons, there are 80 billion neurons in your brain. And the current thinking is that who you are, and what you experience, your entire existence can be reduced to the electrical stimulation of the combinations of your 80 billion neurons. Um, you know, that's due for refinement. Again, neuroscience is a brand new science, but something like that is probably true. These neurons can do three things. 
They can excite other neurons, they can inhibit other neurons, or they can do nothing. So when you go into a meditative state, what you do, one of the things you do, the, the one that I think is most important for creativity, is that you quiet the inhibitions. So this goes back to something we talked about the last time we met, about the left brain and the right brain, and how uh, in the 60s there was this concept, which has become kind of a cliche, that your left brain is your inner accountant and your right brain is your inner artist. And that came from the, from the observation that left brain neurons tend to inhibit right brain neurons. So one of the things that there is experimental evidence for is that if you quiet those left brain neurons, then you tend to be, certain creative skills seem to emerge, certain things that we would perceive as talents, like the ability to draw and sketch. Um, there's a guy, Alan Snyder, in Australia who's had some very interesting results by suppressing people's um, left brain and then telling them to draw a horse, for example. So when you, when you meditate, you reduce those inhibitions. You reduce your inhibitions to new ideas, too. So that's what I think e-focus does for us. That's why I think that I have much better ideas in the shower than I have at the workstation. You know, much better ideas, literally, you know, standing in line to get a beer at an Oakland Raiders game than I do grinding my head up against whatever problem I'm trying to solve, whether it's, you know, finding a metaphor in a novel or solving some technical problem for 100 gigabit Ethernet, whatever you have. The better ideas come when I'm defocused. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I've had that feeling where it's like I'm banging my head against the wall. And what I've learned is if I just step back and relax. Boy, it you is know, a lesson um, of software engineers, too. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it is. These software guys, I've seen them sitting there. They'll grind for 36, 48 hours in a mm -hmm. row, just writing, just banging their heads up against software bugs. And then right. if, if they can just wedge themselves away and just go do something else, you know, it's like the, I don't know, I don't want to per, per, perpetuate a stereotype, but it's too amusing not to, and that is, is that old <laughs> Saturday Night Live skit with William Shatner and all the Star Trekkies and, and saying, him stopping one of them and saying, go out there, kiss a girl, get out there, but that's, you know, they go away for 10 minutes or an hour a day, and they come back with a million new ideas of things to try and frequently solve their problem in 10 minutes. It happens That's great. all the time in Silicon Valley. Right. Well, the image that comes into my mind's eye as we're speaking of this, it's like when we're really focused, it's like a certain part of our brain lights up. But if we relax, then the whole and, and the whole brain can start to light up. I know with uh, some of these um, meditators, the MRIs um, that they've done on their brains, a lot of their brain is lit up because they're they're not just focusing on one linear, tiny little thing. They're they're defocusing, like what you say, and more of their right. brain seems to be activated. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. So that's a funny thing. Um, our brains burn something like 15, 20% of the calories that we, that we burn. Um, oh, hopefully that's 15 to 20% of the calories that we consume too. But, <laughs> uh, but it turns out, it, it seems like, yeah, in this default state, what they call the default state, where we're uh, meditating or relax, not focusing on things, that our brain has more active circuits. It's lit up, if you will, in the sense of an MRI image. 
that it's more lit up, more of it is lit up when we're relaxed than when we're focusing. So, you know, the old exercise diet, ah, I can beat exercise just by concentrating because my brain burns most of the calories. doesn't really pay off because your brain actually burns slightly fewer calories when you concentrate than when you don't because more of your brain is more more circuits are firing when you're relaxed. It's, yeah, it's, it's contradictory. And it will be very interesting to see how the neuroscience progresses on that topic. There'll be a lot of surprises there. So it's hard to predict what that really means. Yeah, it is fascinating. I do feel like definitely as I've given myself permission to relax more, I'm definitely more in balance. I'm happier. And my weight has stabilized at a lower number. So you're making this Fantastic. make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, wanna, know, I learned a I lot wanna... from writing this book. And this is, this is certainly a big part of it. I wish I'd known this a long, long time ago that you really can prime yourself to be more creative. There's simple things you can do that are not just yes. easy, but more fun than pounding your head up against a problem that you've been pounding it up against for two hours already. And I'm all about the fun, so I can't wait to hear what you have to say. <laughs> well, I think meditation is, is, is a, a really huge step. And like I said, that was a big part. That was a big part of what I learned from writing this book. But also, you know, headbanging at heavy metal concerts or whatever, you know, whatever gets your yayas out. If you can cram your brain full of whatever information you're facing and then go out and try and forget it, well, consciously you'll forget it. If you can, that's best. But beneath that, all of the processes in your brain that are generating thoughts that don't make it to consciousness, at least while they're developing, they're gonna, they do a lot of work for you. Let them do the work. You know, you have the fun. Let, you know, outsource the problems to the rest of your brain. I love this. So here's something from your book that I, I want to read because it just made me so happy. We've only been people gossiping, complaining, and laughing together for something like 250,000 years, not even 15,000 generations. We started out staring at the moon and stars. Eclipses scared the crap out of us. We feel love and awe, happiness, contentment, certainty, doubt, fear and surprise, anger, grief, boredom, engagement, distraction. The truth is we're packed with feelings. Are we sensitive? Yes. We can safely say humans are sensitive. So we write poetry, make art, perform music, dance. Everything we do is a dance of some form or another. We have family, friends, colleagues, and associates. We travel in tribes. But I'm left with some questions. How the hell did we go from fearing eclipses to postulating multiple universes? How do we go from telling stories around campfires to watching blockbuster movies and playing video games in virtual reality? How did we decide tribes were so great that we should invent politics, economies, and militaries? which I guess boils down to one question. Why do we make things so damn complicated? I have an idea. Let's relax, put on some tunes, get yourself a beer, and while you're up, grab one for me too. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are, we are abstracting machines, man. We will make things complicated. <laughs> and that's okay. But I do yeah. think what, what I got from your book is like, we can be really smart, but enjoy the journey. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's, yeah, the end is pretty well defined. Yeah, it is. And so I don't think any of us need to rush to the end. We need to relax and enjoy the journey. Yep, Open our minds and you. hearts to that connection and celebration. Um, for, 
for being here. Yeah, that I mean, we're we're going home. There's no doubt. I call this a working vacation. So wow. I, I'm enjoying it a lot. It was a lot more work, and now it's more like a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> being human is weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Dr. Stevens, where can people get more of you? Where can they get your book and connect with you and find out more about your other work, your other books? Well, there are, of course, lots of, lots of links on my website, ransomstevens.com. Um, my name is Ransom, as in kidnapping, like a ransom note with an N at the end. <laughs> and Stevens, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S, ransomstevens.com. There and Amazon. So there's lots of stuff on my website. And one thing I should point out is that my first novel, the God Patent, um, the premise for it is that I had this idea for a model of the soul that requires, it certainly requires steps of faith, but not giant leaps. It boils down to a single question that's kind of complex. So it's built around a novel with an engineer who's trying to reconstruct his life after making bad mistakes and doing stupid things with the help of an adolescent teenage skate rat who is also a mass prodigy. But there's a, a model mm. for the soul that requires steps rather than leaps of faith in it that might interest your, your audience, mm. the God patent. Yeah, steps are usually a better way of going. Better the tortoise than the hare. Well, yeah, Dr. Well, Stevens, we all, thank we you. all have faith thank in you. things. Yes, it's true. And I just feel like I want to invite you back because, again, I still have a lot of I want to talk to you about. I have a lot of questions for you. And I just really appreciate your wisdom and your heart and your intentions. I think you're just adorable. Well, thank you very much, Tammy. <laughs> and to my listeners, I adore you too. Please be in touch with me on Facebook or email me or go to my website, TammyBPhD.com. This is about relationship. We heal together. God bless you onward and upward. Bye for now. Bye.